Since 1994, it has been legal in the state of Oregon to commit suicide by physician, to engage with assisted suicide. During that time, thousands of souls have been lost to the lie that suicide can be medicinal, as if physicians or so-called caretakers who administer a fatal overdose could call that deadly act health care. It's not true. What was true yesterday remains true today. The role of the physician is never to intentionally cause harm or to cause death. It is rather to heal and to cure. And through legitimate health care, we can foster a culture of hope. Although we managed to avoid a Roe v. Wade-style tragic outcome on the issue of assisted suicide, the Supreme Court of the United States never, fortunately, said that there was a broad right to suicide, SCOTUS instead unanimously ruled against the right to suicide in 1997's Washington v. Glucksburg. However, the high court didn't rule it out. It left the issue to the states and the consequential matter of patient protection along with it. And Oregon, among others, has been unfortunately at the forefront of America's state-by-state pro-suicide culture. Today, we speak with Lois Anderson, executive director of Oregon Right to Life, on her state's lessons from the front lines of the cause to prevent suicide and to protect patients, and how advocates across the nation can protect those most at risk in their communities. I am Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Liberty and Law. I am Tom Shakely. We're coming to you from Americans United for Life, where we advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. And we're thrilled to be joined today by a great woman doing great and important work in the Pacific Northwest, Lois Anderson. Lois, it's such a pleasure to speak with you today. How are you? Uh, We're doing well. I am looking outside, and it is a sunny, beautiful spring day here in Oregon. That is excellent to hear. And we've also got Noah Brandt, Coming to you from the heartland, Noah. How are you doing in Missouri? From the heartland, Tom. Uh, I'm doing. I'm doing great. And uh, you know, Lois, uh, she's like you said right in your intro, Tom. She's on the front lines, and uh, she's fighting battles that are hard. Battles I think some people would rather just sort of leave alone. But it's so important that we are uh, that we're dealing with. I'm glad that Lois is out there doing it. That's right. Yeah. And we're going to talk uh, more about the issue of suicide and patient protection in particular uh, in a little bit. But first, Lois, let's hear, uh, let's talk about you and let's hear about Oregon Right to Life. You know, when did you begin with the work and, and what issues does Oregon Right to Life focus on? Well, Oregon Right to Life, we just celebrated our 50th year last year. Um, and so we're there was a wonderful group of doctors and farmers actually who got together in 1970 right after Oregon legalized abortion and started Oregon Right to Life. So I feel like I'm the recipient of just of those decades of of work, hard work um, and effort that they put into it. And uh, but I've been here for 22 years. It's hard to It's gone by like a flash. Um, I spent most of those years as the political director working on campaigns and lobbying in the legislature. And then I I, um, was hired as executive director in um, uh, September of four years ago. So (laughs) I feel feel newbie, like I'm a newbie in this position, but um, it's been a real pleasure to work in Oregon, even though it is a difficult um, landscape, we have uh, wonderful pro-life advocates who, who work every day to help protect life. I know it's got to be difficult in some states where we have had a culture in whatever way, whatever part of the spectrum of human rights that you look at, whether it's abortion on the beginning of the spectrum, 
uh, or issues of patient protection in the middle of the spectrum or issues of, you know, what a true um, dignified death looks like. You know, it can be tough in a state like Oregon or like New York or like Vermont. Vermont is, you know, dead last. They're 50 in terms of the Americans United for Life life list where we rank states from most to least protective of human life comprehensively. So if you're in Vermont, you know, tough rap. We'll speak to somebody from Vermont another day. Oregon's a little bit higher up the list. Um, what is it like to, to be and to advocate in a state where I think even within the pro-life community, right, people probably think that there's nothing good going on there? Uh, yeah, we do run into that. And of course, uh, you know, our, our uh, legislature is in the hands of the Democratic Party. We have super majorities and definitely our um, party in Oregon has really embraced the Democratic Party in Oregon has really embraced those radical policies that um, you're you're starting to see more at a national level, and um, especially we have some folks that have been elected for quite a long time in the legislature who push really hard, especially um, on issues with physician-assisted suicide and and even to the point of active euthanasia. So it is very challenging. Um, but, you know, we just have to put one foot in front of the other and do the task that's ahead of us. One thing that we have done is we've really um, started to work very closely with county commissioners and even with school board members. It's just really getting down, um, oh, well, I guess I shouldn't say down, but deep into uh, those grassroots and, and the smaller communities that where we can really work with them to um, create what a culture of life looks like. And uh, that's where we found some, some success for sure. Is, is there, Lois, in Oregon sort of a, is there like a pregnancy resource center culture uh, that is, is, is there to help women even with the permissive abortion laws to, to make the choice for life? Yes, we have an, an amazing network of pregnancy care centers um, that we've worked with for a long time. I, uh, boy, I can't even remember what year it was, but we saw some of the first anti-pregnancy center legislation here in Oregon. And um, it really sparked uh, an effort to work closely together. They have a statewide association. I serve on their public policy committee. And it's been a really wonderful uh, partnership um, to work together to protect them from a public policy um, standpoint and allow them to really do their, do their work. In fact, we just had a major shutdown of, a, of an abortion clinic here in Oregon, um, uh, a rather notorious abortion clinic, Lovejoy Surgery Center. And um, I, I am sure that the main reason was a decline in um, demand. And I know that a big reason for that is because of the work of our pregnancy centers. That's so powerful. I think of that, you know, I'm originally from Pennsylvania. Noah probably gets tired of me saying that, but we talk about Missouri a lot. So I feel compelled to talk about Pennsylvania too. You know, and in Pennsylvania, you know, in Pennsylvania, I never, I was never, uh, never raised as a Quaker, but I, I do, I do respect the tradition, but, uh, you know, Pennsylvania, I think has, at least it had as a, a, a reputation for a long time that it was sort of moderate. And so, you know, that was good in the sense that, uh, the extremes in the negative sense were, were moderated, um, the extreme impulses on the political spectrum. Um, but the downside of that is that, you know, sometimes, um, let's say, a lack of moral courage in politics. I know, what are we talking about? Could that ever happen? But a lack of moral courage in politics could define <laughs> both parties in Pennsylvania uh, to the point where even, you know, unfortunately today, right, it's like Pennsylvania gave us uh, so much of, of what we've had on the abortion issue, thanks to Pennsylvania's governor, Robert Casey, a Democrat, pro-life Democrat, uh, who was the reason uh, why we had the Supreme Court ruling Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Now, that was a setback for the pro-life movement in the sense that, you know, we, we certainly hoped and expected, especially after Ronald Reagan's pro-life presidency, uh, we had hoped for Roe to be consigned to the dustbin of history with that uh, ruling. It wasn't to be, but the court did reject. It basically rewrote its abortion jurisprudence uh, and and it did throw out its rationale, its non-scientific, you know, made-up trimester framework, its its you know false premises about the total inhumanity of the child, and replaced it with uh, sort of you know these questions of of do people have a reliance interest on this now? 
Um, what kind of you know burdens and balances do we have to do? And so Pennsylvania's delivered good things in that respect, but it's also been bad because moderation in Pennsylvania since then certainly led to a time where you think, you know, uh, think of particularly the governorship of Tom Ridge, who later became uh, an influential figure in the um, George W. Bush presidency, a very moderate politician, Tom Ridge. And even under a pro-life, allegedly, governorship, Abortion facilities weren't inspected in Pennsylvania at the time because people understood moderation to mean simply not looking. And what did that result in? It resulted in, among other things, the tragedy, the horrors, the crimes uh, of Kermit Gosnell, uh, the notorious abortionist in Philadelphia who killed um, patients, uh, who, who led to the deaths of patients uh, through neglect uh, and just you know a terrible example. We saw Ulrich Klopfer right in, in the Midwest. Um, near Chicago, and we saw, you know, that was just gruesome, horrendous, nightmare scenarios of storing the the remains of aborted human beings, of of little babies, uh, in jars in his garage, in his basement, in his practice. And we think, like, that's that's an example, unfortunately, of where moderation on the issue of, of abortion can lead us, right? Where people say, well, we don't have to pay attention. And it allows folks like Planned Parenthood to get away with saying, you know, uh, everything's fine. Everything's on the up and up. And it's like, well, when you're not being inspected, when you're not being held to the same standards that any other medical facility would be, of, of course things seem fine because nobody's looking. So we need to keep we need to keep advocating for this stuff and, and engaging people from across the spectrum, right? We're re- recognizing that this is not a political issue at the end of the day. Um, you know, we're grateful for strong Republicans who stand up for life, and we're grateful for strong Democrats who stand up for life. We need more of both. Yeah, no, that Tom, that is uh, that's completely right. And just and just because a state is you know dominated dominated by Democrats, it doesn't mean that they're uh, they're destined to be very pro-abortion. You can look at Louisiana, Democratic governor, Democratic legislator, uh, passed pro-life laws. But you know, back to Oregon, Lois, what's sort of the state of play for life issues? You know, for someone uh, like me and maybe some of our listeners who uh, don't know much about it, uh, what's wh- where are they at when it comes to? Uh, abortion, and then ultimately uh, the meat of our conversation, which is uh, this horrible uh, suicide by physician. Uh, what's what's going on on the ground right now? Well, um, it, you know, we always we always say when we're starting a legislative session, it's like, well, what else? What else could they? What else could they want? What else could they do? And we mm-hmm. we have mm-hmm. been continually surprised about um, the creativity of our pro-abortion leadership here in Oregon. So. We're always having to be on the lookout for places where nooks and crannies where abortion and the abortion agenda is not pushed into and and uh, making sure that we are looking very carefully at all the legislation because currently we don't have any protective legislation for babies and their mothers. Um, We have laws on the books that allow Uh, We've had state funding for abortions for a long time in Oregon, but now we also have a mandate on insurance companies to provide abortions uh, at no, uh, with no copay. Um, We we do have a, a, a an insurance company, medical insurance company that's affiliated with the Catholic Church that has a small carve out, um, which is something that we're will have to try to fight to keep if they go against that. But really, we have. Um, just, it, I will say it, extreme leadership that is not sure. content with abortion being legal. They want abortion to be pushed into every nook and cranny that they can find. So it, it's difficult in sometimes to connect the dots for people because it's not necessarily a, we're, this clearly says that abortion is going to um, be legal. It's it's in this little tiny sliver of the law. We did have some sort of limitation, and now they're trying to take it away. You know, this wow. se- this session we haven't seen that, which we're thankful for. Um, but it it can be um, it it can be difficult. But we do have really great pro life legislators. Uh, we've been working really hard to elect. Um, pro-life legislators, and even though they're not in the majority, we have some really strong ones that are on the lookout for us that speak out very clearly. And as I tell people that call in and they're like, what good is it? My legislator doesn't agree with me. I don't want to send them another email. And um, I just always encourage them that our job is to tell the truth. Our job is to Mm -hmm. tell them this is the impact of the legislation that you're about to vote on. 
and their response is up to them. Um, but right, but right. I don't ever want a legislator to you know whether whether we know about it or not or it's it at time when they're older or sometime when they're looking back and they say well nobody ever nobody ever explained to me nobody ever told me what the real impact of this legislation was so that's so I voted that way so I right. um, I really encourage people to just keep up that communication and we don't know also. Um, what kind of impact it has on them personally. You know, ultimately, um, when we make decisions about abortion or assisted suicide, there are individual humans that are making those decisions. And we can save lives in a lot of different ways. Of course, we're working to save lives by protecting them in law. That's, our, that's, that's what we do. Um, but, but individual human beings can also save lives and yes. in, in, their, in their daily life. And there might be something that we say along the way that just sticks with them. So those, those are mm. that those are some That's of great. the things that are encouraging um, for us in working in this kind of environment. No, that that is encouraging, Lois. And I wonder, you know, in a minute, I want to get into sort of a deeper dive. Uh, you're an expert, obviously, on. Uh, the the suicide laws in Oregon and what they mean for the rest of the country and what's going on there right now. But can you do it just a little bit more scene setting for us and context for people who are just unfamiliar with Oregon? You know, like for example, I live I live in St. Louis, right across the border from Illinois, and Illinois is a very pro-abortion state. But every most people who live outside of Chicago uh, aren't really in that camp. There's a lot of pro-life people in Illinois. How is that in Oregon? Is 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 the pro-abortion sentiment pretty concentrated, or uh, what's it like in the state at large? It is pretty concentrated, um, and we do have a, a couple of uh, urban areas that uh, tend to that that's where it tends to be very concentrated. So even like our abortion facilities, it's not widespread throughout the whole state. That they're really they're they're focused on areas, you know, part of that is market, but also part of it is acceptability, you know, of, of the community. Um, so we have a lot of people in Oregon who are pro-life and who are um, working on the issue and, and people that just, you know, they consistently vote. Um, I do think that there has been a political culture for a while, though, even amongst people. Um, one of our longtime U.S. senators was Bob Packwood, and he was well known for being a pro-abortion Republican. Um, and so I think there has been, um, unfortunately, some political leadership that's sort of given the impression over the years that being pro-choice, pro-abortion is nonpartisan. Um, rather than the other way around. Now, um, I'm. There is though a new generation of people that they don't know who he was, and um, so I think that amongst the younger people that are involved politically, they see it much more. Um, I think much more clearly as um, not necessarily as a partisan issue, but seeing it as an important political issue for them to um, to act on as they're in their um, in their voting and in their political in their political action as well as as working you know um, on on the sidewalks and with um, sidewalk counseling and prayer and and their work with women and children all right well Lois it's so important that we continue to speak across that full spectrum of life and so it's important I think you know visiting your website for instance we should we should mention that right off the bat because we're going to talk about a great report uh, from you in a second but ortl.org right is how to get there and I think you know you see the different stuff you guys have done I'm thinking of the together we advocate conference um, maybe if you speak about that just for a minute because I think first of all that's such a great power we use that word too at American Center for Life advocates and lawmakers and I think helping people realize like just raising their voice whether it's in their home neighborhood to lawmakers so powerful well, this year we had a, a COVID version um, where we did a, a sidewalk advocacy masterclass with a limited audience. Um, but normally together we advocate is it's the largest pro-life gathering in the Pacific Northwest. We usually have around 400 people from the region who come and um, we, we bring in um, nationally known speakers and we have general sessions. And then um, last year we had Dr. Anthony Levitino, um, who was a big, big hit. Yeah, we had uh, Monica Snyder from Secular Pro-Life who gives a great presentation with a lot of uh, statistics that, that 
people really responded to. And then we have 12 workshops um, that are given by, uh, by some of our wonderful doctors, some of our legislators, some um, folks on our, on our staff that, that run the gambit from you know how to protect your loved ones when you're filling out a post and advanced directive to um, you know what are the basics of, of abortion procedures because we get people that um, you know are new to the movement as well as people that have been around for a long time and it's great there's a lot of networking we um, we invite other pro-life organizations to come in and display do their tables and so there's a lot of networking and visiting and fellowshipping it's really a great day and I'm really looking forward to getting back to uh, being able to have it in person yeah (laughs) yeah that's so good. Well, we'll follow that with uh, with interest. I think uh, you know that's that's uh, revealing to us too, right? Because you know I remember speaking a few years ago with uh, uh, a physician actually at the United Nations on a panel concerning uh, patients' protections and um, assisted suicide. And you know this was uh, his name's Dr. William Breitbart, and he you know spoke very clearly. Said you know the biggest driver we know in people opting for uh, forms of suicide uh, is loneliness. Uh, feelings of of a lack of worth, right? Self-esteem, but also a lack of ability to to live a meaningful life in your in your daily circumstances. And he says, so those things, those root causes, are incredibly important to address. I think you know, recently the state of Oregon released uh, its twenty third, it's incredible, twenty third annual report on assisted suicide in the state. Um, you know, what did that report tell us? I think, by the way, when I, when I read this, it's not very long. It's, it's like a dozen pages or something. You know, you think of like the movies or whatever, where it says like, no, no animals, no people were harmed in the creation of this, of this thing. And I read this report and I'm like, people were harmed in the creation of this report. I mean, this is horrible stuff. Hundreds. Yeah. Um, it is. I mean, one thing it told us is there was a sharp increase in the number of people um, who who requested the per, the prescriptions, um, one of the things that we always track that is um, so disturbing. I mean, it's obviously very disturbing that people uh, are going to a doctor, getting enough medication to to poison themselves. Um, but that meant those prescriptions are really not tracked. And so there, there's always there's always this gap between the number of prescriptions that were written and then the report of the people who actually followed through with it, or people that have had the prescriptions for more than a year and then followed through with it. So the the whole the whole setup of this law when it and it was proposed by ballot measure was that it was going to be very limited to only those people that were in the last six months of their life and only limited to people that are medic are mentally competent and that this was just going to be this very controlled thing um, to allow people to die with dignity and what it's revealed in this report and over the years is that those and in our our um our motto basically our theme for our to vote no our no campaign was safeguards don't work and these are so-called safeguards. There are real no limit. There are no real limitations on it. And I think that the report really does um, reveal some of that if you look into it. Yeah, it's uh, it's so important to emphasize that point. I think Wesley J. Smith writes prolifically on this very issue, right? Which is says this is the the wedge that's used. It's an emotional wedge. It's it's manipulation, really, uh, of our of our natural empathy where advocates uh, who push, the activists who push assisted suicide, active euthanasia, and worse, they do it exactly that, right? They say, don't worry, don't worry. I know this sounds horrible, but it's going to be very, very diligently, you know, uh, governed. Just the, the craziest Restricted, exactly. It's only going to be these terrible, tragic cases. And don't worry, we're experts, we're physicians or whatever. You know, we'll put the physicians in charge. Uh, but it's like that the moment then that the principle is in place that we can prescribe lethal doses um, the same way that somebody might, you know, might sell a, a lethal dose of, of uh, you know, of opioids, right, to something or the average drug pusher on the side of the street. Once that principle's in place, there's there's no logical end to that. Who's to say, right? Once you've accepted the premise 
there's no guideline ultimately. And and then of course, once the guidelines are there, the activists can then push and say, these guidelines are barriers to access. Now, leave aside the point, of course they are. The entire point of guidelines are, are to create barriers to access, to create you know legitimate versus illegitimate uses. How do you react to all that? Well, it, it's interesting that you say that because we have seen a real push in the past couple of years that what they used to say, oh, these are safeguards and this is gonna this is gonna be limited to now exactly those words. Like, well, there there are limits to access. These are unreasonable restrictions. Um, and we did see one a, a law we were unable to stop in the last session, which was to ta- eliminate the 15-day waiting period for people for um, who a doctor determined that they had less than two weeks to live. Um, and I was so proud of our team when we were fighting that bill. We had excellent, uh, um, very sound testimony. We had a psychiatrist who, who basically was pleading with the committee, telling them there's really no way that you can determine um, whether a person that is this ill is suffering from depression in a short period of time. Depression is not something that you like have a questionnaire for and and then you decide and and they just their their ears were just closed they they did not want to hear the science they did not want to hear the testimony of of doctors who were actually caring for these patients they just wanted to make sure that no matter what you could you could kill yourself and it it Mm. was it was it Mm. was very stark and again it was one of those situations where we told we told the truth. We laid it out for them, and we we advocated for people in these situations, and and they they rejected it. And now they're um, we haven't seen the legislation yet, but we're anticipating that soon they're going to want to take away the six month um, uh, diagnosis and expand it to twelve months, which is basically like whatever, like you you anything. You, you, anything. There, there's no, I mean, there's no limit I, I to it lot, at that point. I have point. a lot of people who have been given a, a, a year-long prognosis, and it's five years later. Yeah, and there's, right. yeah, and there's evidence that um, you know doctors will even squish like diabetes in there and some other um, some other diagnosis that we wouldn't think are terminal per se um, or or at the end of life, but it's just is simply people that no longer want to live with the condition. And so um, they ask for deadly drugs. That's right. Yeah, that that stretching of the guidelines, right? So you, you have exactly that where you start out with a very limited window and then you say, well, maybe, maybe 12 months or in some jurisdictions, uh, both nationally and internationally, where they've now adopted frameworks where they say, uh, you know, if death is foreseeable as a consequence of a condition, and it's like, Look, death is foreseeable, literally for all of us, right? Like only the the futurists in San Francisco think they're going to be uploading uploading their consciousness to a box, you know, in a server room somewhere, <laughs> uh, which to me sounds like worse than death, frankly. But you know, like so, in that sense, there there are no no restrictions on this, and they're designed not to be. And so, it's got to be hard, right, when you're advocating for protections to hear the very same, sometimes literally the same individuals who may be in you know, year A said, we need to do this with these protections. Then in year B say, oh, those, these protections that I argued for uh, are really a bad idea. I don't know who proposed those, but we got to get rid of them. You know I mean? It's like on the one end, hard to take them seriously, but on the other, it's, that's just mendacious, isn't yeah. it? Yes. I mean, I, I don't have anything to add to that. That's pretty much perfect. <laughs> Let's uh, let's run through here just just real briefly in this report that we've spoken about here. This is the the state issued you know on Oregon.gov the Oregon Death with Dignity Act. It, here's the specific language: "Quote allows terminally terminally ill Oregonians who meet specific qualifications to end their lives through voluntary self-administration of a lethal dose of medications, a lethal dose of medications." prescribed by a physician for that purpose, unquote. So I think we've gone through in this conversation every part of that sentence and what is wrong with it, what is contradictory about it, 
you know, terminally ill does not necessarily mean terminally ill. Um, you know, uh, voluntary self-administration, there are no real guarantees of that, no real checks on that. When you're, you know, talking about a year plus from the time that somebody might get this to the time it's used, who's ensuring that it was voluntary when it was ultimately administered, who's ensuring it was self-administered? Nobody. Uh, letting, letting alone the phrase, which I just, as, as somebody who loves language, lethal dose of medications. You know, it's like go on even, they haven't changed it yet, but go on dictionary.com and look up what a medication is. Not something that's lethal by definition, right? So it's just incredible, um, but at least important that we're be able to call attention to these things. And I think your advocacy uh, and, and your continued life-affirming witness is, is really, really valued. You know, digging into some of these numbers, Lois, from 2020, uh, let's see, 25% increase in residents requesting lethal prescriptions. In 2020, 370 people received the lethal prescriptions. Of that group, 245 people died from ingesting the lethal medication. So 370 asked for them, 245 took them. Uh, so t give me your thoughts on, for one, uh, the just the increase, right, a 25% increase. And then two, the disparity, almost, you know... Uh, 100 less people died than thought they might want to. Yeah, I think um, on the one hand, we're, it's, in, it's encouraging that the numbers remain low. Perspective, I mean, I know, it, I think about those numbers and those numbers are real people and they're real people with families and, and family units who have all been impacted like this. So I don't wanna say that in a way that mitigates that at all. It's just like, thank God it's not twice as many, you know, because it could be. Um, but that gap between the people that have received the medication and the ones who have used it um, is really disturbing because that is lethal medication that somewhere in somebody's house with, with no tracking of what's actually happening to it. And I don't think it takes too much of imagination to realize that that is a very dangerous situation. Um, and and there, is it, there isn't any, um, there just aren't any regulations, there aren't any tracking in, until they've been used and the report is, is submitted. Um, nobody really knows what happens to that, medic to that medication. If you think about that, um, it, it really it really is a dangerous um, situation. And also, one thing that's interesting, um, there was a recent article by our public uh, radio that um, there's an ad, a, a euthanasia advocate um, who we ran into quite a bit at the legislature who passed, who passed away. And he passed away without using his medication that he'd asked for. And um, it's a very, a revealing article that and we've heard this before that with some people it's almost as if just having the medication available is somehow some kind of comfort to them and so but they don't really intend to use it um, I, I don't pretend to really understand um, why that is the case but it is it is a um, it is a repeating story that we've heard before. And so I think that also can be an explanation for it. Yeah, there's that idea, right, that hard cases make bad law. Uh, in other words, you know, the very specific circumstances of a particular case can, can be uh, really bad consequentially when it's drawn out for a general principle, right? Uh, and, you know, I think in that sense, you know, whether you think of Saving Private Ryan or whatever your, you know, uh, your favorite um, war movie is or, or, or historical document or whatever. So many of these things, especially the more distant you go in the past, before things even like general anesthesia, you see depicted on screen um, really, really terrible situations, right? I mean, you think of like a Ken Burns Civil War documentary of, of a guy getting his leg amputated in the field or something. Horrible, right? Uh, and you think, I wouldn't want to go through that. I wouldn't want to die that way. Uh, and, you know, the, the suicide culture we have, the euthanasia culture we have, it operates almost on that principle of feeding into a fear like that and then acting as if that's an end that people encounter still, right? As if we don't have anesthesia, as if we don't have penicillin, as if we don't have world-leading hospice care. 
you know, and hospice is not just a place that you go, you know, in your final days. It's a place that you go for, for real uh, holistic care. So in that sense, it's, it is, you know, it's like peddling to our, our worst fears and insecurities. And that's where you get that loneliness factor that needs to be addressed too, that Dr. Breitbart addressed. And you're right. You know, it's like you have 200 some, 300 some people asking for this and, you know, the numbers are probably going to go up over time as people market it, as people push it. Um, but you know, each, each one that says no, uh, and that chooses to die in a, in a dignified way, uh, in a natural way, um, is a victory for life. I, I think also I didn't mention just the, the impact of the pandemic. And when we do talk about loneliness and isolation, you know, there's people that haven't been able to see their, their, um, family members for over a year because they're not allowed in um, the care home where they're being taken care of or the other facilities. So um, while I think one year is probably, you know, it's, it may not be a good idea to say, oh, it was all the, all the pandemic, but I think as we, over time, um, we'll, we'll understand how much that played into this as yeah. well. Now, I want to uh, underscore a point here that was made too, that the in terms of, of where these prescriptions uh, for death are coming from, there was one instance, you know, that you think, on the one end, it's the same as abortion, right? It's like, it's hard to find a physician who's really interested, let alone enthusiastic about engaging in that. Um, but you're going to get some who do. And in one particular case, you had noted that one doctor provided lethal prescriptions for 31 people in one year. That's that, that that's astounded a lot. me when I read that. I mean, most. that's like, you know, almost one a week when you factor in holidays and everything else. Yeah, it is astounding. And um, we actually know who it is. Uh, he because he's revealed himself. Um, it's do, uh, Dr. Charles Blinky, who is a professor at Oregon Health Sciences University in their cancer research. Yeah, and, and what we found is we have the National Headquarters of Compassion and Choices, very interestingly named pro-euthanasia group, although they would, they would call themselves not pro-euthanasia, but whatever. And so they, they desperately want broadly accepted nationalized euthanasia but they're not really in support they're, of it. they're not they're pro pretty neutral yeah sort of just, yeah but you know they have they have people on staff that all they do is is receive calls from uh people family members and or the patients themselves who want to be connected with a doctor who will give them a prescription and so that that's how this kind of this kind of thing happens um and it is like you drew the parallel to abortion. It's just so similar because most doctors, the vast majority of doctors are in medicine because they want to care for people. They, they want to help people. They want to cure people. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's, it's such a, a whiplash too. You think of just culturally, you know, um, our parents, our grandparents, uh, you know, growing up with you know, an America that had more commonly the, you know, experiences, the small town experiences, right, of a, of a sort of a George Bailey, it's a wonderful life type scenario where, you know, if you didn't literally grow up in a, in a uh, you know, Bedford Falls type community, um, you grew up in one certainly where, you know, the, the local cop or fireman or whatever, you know, everybody went to school with each other. People tended to know each other. Um and, you know, people would, would be there for each other. And you go from that culture where the entire movie, you know, is, is, a, is sort of a, a, a call to hope, right, uh, amidst hopelessness of a really terrible set of situations uh, to one today where, you know, it's like the, the real tragedy is that there wasn't a, a physician willing to give George a, a, a lethal overdose prescription. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's laughable, right? But it's the reality. And you think, how did we, how did we do that, you know, uh, without getting whiplash in, in the course of just one or two and, generations? And, you know, there are country. a lot of reasons for, for hope, Lois, and I kind of want to turn, turn towards that as well. I mean, re- read one really compelling uh, quote that you wrote. You write, quote, people end their lives through assisted suicide for three main reasons. Those reasons are all triggers for major depression. Depression is a medical condition that can and should be treated. Suicide is not the answer. Break that down for us. Tell us the reasons and then give, give us the reasons for hope because all, most of these reasons are not uh, existential pain. They're more sort of existential uh, mental and psychiatric issues that can successfully be treated. They can successfully be helped. So tell us about that. Well, I'm just going to read straight from the report because they... Uh, I mean, one thing we are thankful for is they do have this reporting and the, the 
doctors and people are supposed to fill it out. So we have some data. So the um, 94 point, they can mark more than one, but 94.3 of the, the people who um, reported said that their end of life concern was less able to engage in activities making life enjoyable. And the next one, 93% was losing autonomy. And after that, 71% uh, was loss of dignity. So um, pain hardly even shows up. Even losing control of bodily functions is fairly low. So it, where, I mean, where, where does pain come in? Because that's, that's at least when I hear the arguments, right? That's what I hear is that, is that you want these people to endure uh, just suffering that you can't imagine. So you shouldn't comment on this. Um, inadequate pain control or concern about it um, was about 32%. 32% versus 94%. Yeah. Yeah. What, 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 what are we to make of that and how can we help people? I actually have a, a chart uh, that I want to send you guys. Um, we have a, there's a wonderful organization called Physicians for Compassionate Care that's made out of uh, mostly physicians in Oregon and Washington. And one of them, Dr. Charles Bentz, has developed this um, uh, chart that basically takes you through s something that an older person or a person that is in, um, uh, that has a, a di you know a diagnosis would go through questions they would ask or things that they would say and a compassionate response an example that really sticks out to me is um, he tells a story about a man who came and he had been his longtime patient and he came and requested a suicide and he was kind of surprised and started asking his patient questions and the reason the real reason why was that he took great joy out of attending his grandson's baseball games. And he had become immobile to the point where he was in a wheelchair, couldn't get the wheelchair you know, out of the car and over the bumpy, he just, he couldn't access to watch his, his grandson play baseball. So the solution wasn't suicide. The solution was to get him a motorized cart so he could get out of his car and go to his grandson's baseball game. And so this, this chart is complete with those kinds of very practical suggestions in how to um, interact with people who are in your life or who are your neighbors or who go to your church, um, who you can reach out to. And just the hope is in the solution. The solutions are just listening to them, understanding what's really motivating their feelings um, or at least you know what they're willing to tell you and then just doing simple things um, like giving giving them the opportunity to enjoy life in the way that they want to I mean like you said Tom we are living in a society that has tremendous resources we have tremendous technology we have tremendous medical interventions I, I think of, of Twilight being a, a beautiful time um, and that there are so many ways that we can help people. We just need to listen and we just need to care and not offer death as a solution. That's right. Yeah, because we don't know. We don't know ultimately, right? And, you know, if we accept that root of hopelessness, we can deprive, uh, you know, not only uh, ourselves, but our loved ones, right? Like that grandson of the memories of his grandfather um, for who knows how many years, right? Uh, and that that child and that, and eventually that young man's whole life might come to be shaped by by those experiences. And so that's that's where it comes in that we we need to choose hope. You know, we need we need to figure out how we can help uh, our family and our loved ones and our neighbors have a, a will to live. Would you Lois, would there be anything that you would say to, you know, other uh, pro-life advocates across the country who's maybe maybe their state is just for the first time considering a assisted suicide bill? Uh, what, what, what do you think if, if they wanted to send a letter to their state legislator or even if they wanted to organize an expert to go testify, what are some best practices and how would you advise them as someone who's been in the fight for a while? Well, what I would say first is that if this legislation isn't already in your state, it's coming. And um, it's really important that, that pro-life people uh, educate themselves, that they, that they read um, you know, Wesley Smith is a great resource. 
um, and that they're that they're ready to make an argument. And then the coalition looks a little bit different. Um, and so being willing to basically work with anybody who who wants to prevent this from coming to your state is is important. I think that um, that writing to your legislators, I think phys physicians are very powerful um, allies in this. And I think that um, families who have walked their loved ones through um, the end of their, their life um, are very powerful allies in this. And so it, we, have to, um, we have to tell the story and um, the, the stories and, and I know sometimes we shy away from the emotional, like we, we, wanna, we wanna be, we wanna make the arguments and we want to, to be linear and logical and scientific, um, but the bottom line is this issue is just very emotional for people and um, finding a way to tell the story that will also engage their emotions is, is important. Um, we have found uh, some great allies in the disability community. Um, people who are who are permanently disabled um, and and have different kinds of disabilities are really targeted by this policy, and I think they they understand that on a on a really deep level. And so that's another opportunity to get to know people in your community who um, are are participating uh, in any kind of advocacy on behalf of people with disabilities is, is important as well. Um, and I think that advocating for people that we have dignity um, and our human dignity is intrinsic to us no matter what our state of, of health is, no matter what our state of life is. And we don't want to be drawing lines in um, whether or not human beings in whatever state of health they're in have less dignity or less value. And um, they, they have adopted this word dignity as if they know what it means um, and they, they don't understand it. Uh, people that advocate for assisted suicide do not understand human dignity on a deep level. Well, Lois, thank you so much for your witness, your work with Oregon Right to Life and, and all that you do. We uh, hope that you uh, continue to be in the fight and, and we can all stand alongside one another for many years to come. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you guys about it. I appreciate it. I hope it's helpful for people. So something we do every conversation, Lois, is our shot of gratitude. And we've talked about a lot of heavy but important things today. Our shot of gratitude can be more lighthearted. It could be anything. Uh, so I'll put Noah on the spot first. Uh, and uh, Noah, I'm curious to hear, you know, what is something that you're grateful for? You know, Tom, something I'm grateful for is uh, the creativity of my friends. I, there's so many uh, fun projects uh, and interesting creative outputs that friends of mine have. One thing is a friend of mine just wrote an entire novel. Uh, and he uh, trusted me enough to read through it for him and let me tell him my thoughts. And uh, I've really enjoyed that. And uh, just it's 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 exciting to to be able to live in community with people and sort of share in these uh, artistic and creative ventures. That's really awesome, Noah. Thank you very much, Lois. How about you? What's something you're grateful for? Oh well, I'm grateful for March Madness and how well nice. our University nice. of Oregon and Oregon State women's and men's basketball teams uh, did. And we have a great connection. Actually, the last time Oregon State basketball was in the Final Four, um, a man named Mel Counts was on the team. He went on to be an Olympic medal winner, and he's actually one of our wonderful pro-life advocates that that um, is volunteers and helps us out in our organization. So, go Beavs! Okay. Tom, how about you? What's you know, I uh, I was on eBay recently, and uh, I was able to pick up uh, some great stuff. I have I have three young brothers, and uh, one of them in particular is always looking for for good book recommendations. And as much as possible, you know, he reads the the newer stuff, the young adult novels, and those type of things. But it's always good to get uh, acquainted with the classics, I think. So uh, I was able to introduce him to uh, the Hardy Boys, uh, which was something I grew up with. Got that from the local library when I was a kid, uh, and uh, probably probably. Probably explains my 1950s sensibilities on some things, <laughs> uh, and uh, also picked up a great, uh, great copy of uh, of Lewis Carroll's complete works. Uh, also, so you know. Thanks a lot, Lewis. 
Lois, thank you again so much for joining us today, and we look forward to continuing following your work. Thank you. It was a pleasure. No, it was so good to speak with Lois Anderson at Oregon Right to Life. I think it's incredible. We're not paying enough attention to what's going on in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, we're not. You know, there's a lot of it's 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 the future up there. You know, and like and like she said, if if your state doesn't have suicide by physician right now, they've probably considered it. And if they haven't considered it, believe me, Compassionate Choices, the big interest group, they're going to be knocking on the state legislator's door this year and next year, uh, and they're going to try to get this done in all fifty states. And uh, it's going to be pro-life advocates like Lois who are sort of standing in the breach, making sure that people who are in these vulnerable situations are protected. That's right. You know, we, we say on so many issues, you know, it couldn't happen here, not in our community, not in our town, not in our state. And then it does, you know, and we certainly see that with abortion. Nobody thought that would happen yep. until oh, Roe suddenly made it happen. And, you know, I wonder, like, are we ever going to see, do you think, protections, comprehensive protections from the Supreme Court uh, on the issue of suicide? I think we need them ultimately, don't we? I mean, it can't just be a state issue. We once agreed that suicide was wrong. You're, you're absolutely right, Tom. It's just, it's, you know, it's, it's like it's like abortion. It's like, uh, it, it was like uh, civil rights, right? These things. There's a promissory note, right, in our founding documents that uh, all men are created equal uh, so that, that men and women deserve uh, basic protection at law. And I hope that one day we see that on abortion. And I hope that one day we see it on suicide, you know, that, that it, it is not okay that certain classes of people can be targeted this way for destruction. That's so right. Well, we've got to keep the conversations happening and uh, certainly happy to be a part of these uh, these important issues. You know, Tom, every single state in 2020 that considered suicide by physician, Americans United for Life testified, right? We, 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 we were there. We were with the, That's true. the, the Planned Parenthood Suicide Compassionate Choices. We were there to say this is not okay. We cannot let this happen. And it's only through partnership with our with our friends and uh, and donors, right? Pe- people who who give generously that allow us to be in these states to allow us to sometimes be the only pro life voice trying to stop a suicide bill. You know that's right, Noah. I think America's Center for Life has played such a critical role on these issues, really from the beginning. You know, we were founded fifty years ago in nineteen seventy one to deal with these issues across the whole spectrum of human rights. We were there as bioethics was coined as a field, and I think we've been advocating across these issues for that reason. We've seen how these things have been interconnected, uh, and of course, you know, one of our earliest publications, uh, "Death, Dying, and Euthanasia," uh, mm, that's you know, right, by Dennis Haran and others. It foresaw these things. You know, we've we've aired on Life, Liberty, and Law. Dennis's uh, call, his his prophetic call, to recognize that with abortion would come these other issues because it addresses issues uh, like Charlie Camosi raises of fundamental human dignity and what that looks like in the law. But we can't only do the work with the support of folks in all the states, and so we're very grateful for that support and invite you to uh, continue that support. Invite you to start that support if you haven't already given to AUL. Just visit AUL.org slash give. You can learn about the impact of a one-time gift. You can learn the impact of a monthly gift. We've spoken about how powerful that is at putting us right in between your Netflix and your electric payment and giving us that certainty of knowing, you know, that we're going to get your your support every month. We're going to be able to put it to good use and we're going to be able to tell you the stories of vital impact that it has across the country. So thank you for your support for American Center for Life and we hope to continue to earn it every day. All right, so if you enjoyed our conversation with Lois Anderson from Oregon Right to Life, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast. Go on all those different platforms, rate the show, leave a review, let a friend know you've discovered life, liberty, and law, and share AUL.org. Learn about our mission. Engage with it. Share the latest news with your friends. Until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.